Hold on a sec. I feel like I'm in an insurance commercial. Welcome to C-Lab, the customer education lab, where we explore how to build customer education programs, experiment with new approaches, and exterminate the myths and bad advice that stop growth dead in its tracks. I'm Adam Evermescu. And I am Dave Darrington. And you didn't mention raid this time. That's cool. You know, we're, we're big on the extermination kick. Well, you know, it's a roundup weed killer now. That's, that's my new enemy. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't uh, think in advance of the National Day of. So well, we you know, we're, pocket. we're actually here in a, in a new month, and this is actually National Horseradish Month, I am so excited to say. Ooh, na- I love some good horseradish. It Me too. Like- so you know what I've been doing lately? I've actually been going to, at, at some of the, the grocery stores here, they will sell you like an entire actual fresh horseradish root, and you can grate it onto things. And that's my new, that's my new jam. What, what market is this? Just, you know, some of the little markets around town, like there's a, there's a grocery store here called Berkeley Bowl. They have it because they have like every vegetable in the world. There's even oh, a little market, like a little Japanese market that we have not too far from me that carries fresh horseradish. I dig it. I dig it. Well, on, on that note, uh, enjoy your horseradish. I might have to buy some for, uh, for the weekend celebration. Um, well, let's get into this. Here at Customer Education Laboratories, we are big, major fans of experimentation. Uh, after all, Adam, you know that was kind of a major theme at Optimizely, wasn't it? That's it sure kind was. of where, how you how you constructed the experiments and doing that. I, I dig that, and and you know, I used to be a laboratory chemist. I do know so that. Being a being a scientist, I think, is underrated. I mean, being a scientist in science is a little boring, but um, the discipline that you learn to take to other fields really cool. Um, so. In the last few episodes, if you've been listening, you'll know we're, we're experimenting with new and different kinds of formats. Uh, we've been doing a lot of interviews. You might have caught our CEO series. Uh, we're doing some mini episodes. We'll have more coming in the, the upcoming weeks as well. Some, some as short as 15 minutes. Gasp! Can you do it that short? I don't know. I don't know if we've ever done an episode that that's short. You and I are far too long-winded for that. Yeah. But and if you're listening, hey, we appreciate that. So to early listeners, y- you may remember that the the podcast had a format that we used to experiment with, and we quickly abandoned. What what can we remind our listeners that was about? Well, it wasn't the hypotheses because we will come back to that. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll still we'll do more hypothesis based episodes. Uh, no, early early listeners will actually remember if you've gone back to some to the really old episodes. Uh, we used to do a segment on the show called customer education mailbag and mailbag. we used to do you've got mail right uh, we would <laughs> you end- used to do it it's it, it, the aol adam voice that was the, that was the royal we uh and we would answer <laughs> a quick question at the end of the episode and he was usually unrelated to the main topic but we actually haven't done one of those in a while have we dave no but today that will all change because here's our latest experiment a mailbag episode wow Wow, we're finally going to brush the dust off of that. We've got all these envelopes. We're going to open them up, and and we're going to see what's coming in. So this is me. You know, keep in mind envelope. Oh, you're doing going through them. Cool. This is actually um, a toll that I have from the Bay Bridge. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we have that all um, automated in uh, in Washington State. Okay, so one thing we do want to do, and you can challenge us on this if you will, if you're a listener, um, we like to do this periodically. So please feel free to send us questions. You can contact us in 
our Slack community. What's what's the name of the the Slack community again? It's uh, uh, customer customer ed Slack dot com. Yep, I think it started off as like Customer Education Heroes, but yeah, if you don't know how to get into that and you want to get into that, let us know and we will invite you. Um, but you could also send us an email, and we have a domain email, learn at customer.education. You can send that email, it'll come to us, and we'll pick it up. And if you know us personally, just send us an email. And then we'll make this noise. We'll make that noise. Uh, you okay, know what I'll I really like? The waveforms on here are super weird when I start crinkling paper. I I, <laughs> I like that the old um, oh gosh what was it there was um, uh, Eudora the Eudora email do 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 I think that, that that was before my time indeed well I go into my uh, okay. my retirement here thanks <laughs> so speaking speaking of the uh, the community we did reach out to our community and we asked our listeners to record some questions so instead of just sending us uh, paper or electronic messages or postcards. Uh, we actually have some recorded messages, and boy, are we excited to answer them. So, Dave, let's uh, let's roll tape and play our first question. Hi, this is Michelle Wiedemer. I'm a freelance customer education content developer based in Dallas, Texas, and I'm wondering how you decide to include hands-on activities for on-demand content and whether to use things like hotspots and other rapid e-learning tool capabilities versus a lab environment with exercises. So let's, uh, this, this is interesting. So we're talking, Adam, hotspots and other rapid e-learning capabilities versus lab environments with exercises. Yeah, when, when do we use which type of, of hands-on interactivity? I think it's a, a really good question because you know, we can certainly agree that, that having hands-on activities in your courses and having interactivity in general, it's really useful for driving engagement. Uh, it usually helps with driving learner retention. Um, you know, it makes the course more multimodal in, in general, but when do you decide which, which one to use? And so th- I don't know, Dave, there might be a couple of ways to approach this question. Yeah, I think, I, I think you'd like kind of pencil these down when we were, we were chatting about the, 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 this question in particular. So I, I think, well, like lay it out for me. How, how do you how do you approach this? How would you approach this? Okay, so I I think I would use a, a few a few lenses or, or frames to look at this. Okay. The first frame that I would use is learner effectiveness. So when we think about interactivities, like an interactivity format is only as useful as like how well it supports the the learning outcome that it's supposed to be driving. Mm-hmm. So what outcome are are we teaching to here? Okay. That's a good one. So you're talking like uh, what what Michelle had mentioned, hotspots. And you know, if we know if if we're working with a hotspot, it it could be effective if we go back to Bloom's taxonomy and we need to get that episode out out again. We've talked about this before on the show and most of you know about this. Um, like identifying parts of your user interface, right? Okay, where do you go to to make this certain thing? So if I talk about an outreach, um, where where are the places that I can go to create a new sequence or to load somebody into a sequence? That might be an activity, right? Right, and and you want to just have a you know, pretty simple like UI based. Where do I mm-hmm. click to do this? A, a hotspot will serve that learning outcome perfectly well. It's you know it's it, it's visual enough. You get to see the UI. You get to click something. You get immediate feedback. It could also be helpful for something like an exploratory interactivity, right? Where maybe you're helping the learner um, mind map out a certain concept, uh, concept, right? They can click on different parts of a, 
of a conceptual diagram to explore it and kind of prime the pump for future learning. That might be another reason to use uh, a hotspot activity. Right. And, you know, the way I like to mentally think about that, the, the hotspots are, 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 are kind of an awareness, right? Oh, okay. Oh, I know where to go to do this at that. Because what, what happens to me when I go to a new product and somebody says to do something, there's that pause. Like, oh, you know, I should know where to go to do this, but I don't. And it helps build that, you know, muscle memory. Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, that's that's the hotspot. What about a lab environment? So a lab environment, like you obviously might want to use that for something a little bit more in depth, right? So if the exercises here are a little bit um, higher on Bloom's taxonomy in terms of what they're what they're testing, here is where if you really want to help someone reinforce how they apply certain concepts or how they might, um, you know, actually configure something from scratch, uh, here is where having a lab environment might be a little bit more helpful because now there's more variables and you don't necessarily just you know, click something and get one piece of feedback. Now you have all the variables laid out and you're actually constructing constructing a kind of a net new solution and it's a real world scenario. It's a real world scenario. I love labs, but the caveat there is it not, okay, you have to set that up. There is a, a burden of expense. Let me go back to Gainsight where we built a training environment and that training environment was something I could deploy in seconds from Salesforce. It had Gainsight layered into it and, and exercises on top of that. That wasn't their work environment, but it was a full-on lab that they could do on their own pace and all of our instructional material guided them through that experience. And what I found out of that, that was, it was real world. It, hey, do this, put these things together. And as you progressed through the, tech, the technology, the platform, it really, it, it really works, but it's really labor intensive. On both yeah, ends. Absolutely. So if, if learner effectiveness is one frame to look at this, production cost is is another one. So from a learner effectiveness standpoint, you know, hotspots are they're they're more immediate. Like they're good for mm-hmm. for testing some of these um, scenarios where you really want that in time feedback. You want an immediate response. You click it, you see, you see how you did. Um, or you click it and you know you maybe get a definition of the thing that you just clicked. Lab environments are gonna give you a little bit more um, experiential feedback, right? Because you, you change the widget, the setting actually changes. Uh, and then you kind of see the, the result progressively in a, in a real world scenario. But yeah, you're right. The second frame is production cost. So, you know, hotspot interactivities, if you have a rapid dev tool, or you have an LMS mm-hmm. that that includes hotspot interactivities, well, you can build those, you know, fairly cheaply, fairly efficiently. Yeah. And then you just have to maintain them over time. Whereas like a lab activity, um, you're not necessarily paying for that in terms of uh, having to update the content because it's your your actual product, presumably. But in a lot of cases, you are going to have to get um, a virtual lab platform to be able to deliver that at scale to your learners. Yeah, that's that's hard. I mean, there's a, there's a significant. I remember going through this before, and it, this is not an easy exercise, but it's a super powerful one. And also, I think what we want to do to to deeply answer this question is think about the learner investment, right? Yeah. Um, and this is where let's think about it. A hotspot. A learner is going to be in and out. There, it's a few minutes. Now, that's that's important for one reason. I'm I'm going to get to my opinion about this, and then I'll see what you think. Um, labs are designed to be more intensive. Uh, I think about a a lab as being supportive of a pathway towards certification. So let's think about this. Um, when, when I was reviewing the the question, really thinking about it, it's a spectrum, how you, how you 
approach a learning intervention or experience as for a customer is where you are in your maturity continuum. So at first, if I don't have anything, if I have no program at all, I think things like hotspots and, and very light interactive activities are very helpful to get people working and thinking about your product and maybe mitigate some of the support calls that you might have for simple things, right? Um, on the other hand, labs are meant to be very intensive, driving to that deeper learning. You're going to do this. And I, I keep thinking about when I was a, a physics student and I was studying astrophysics, how it was nearly impossible if you got one question wrong, they were all progressive. And yeah. in, in a business setting, let, let's think, I, I, here I think a spectrum. Hotspot may be really amenable towards a, an end user wh who has a very short learning curve. And you just get awareness, build awareness, build awareness, getting people understanding the product, where to go, what to do, because that's where a lot of the calls come from. Yeah. But an administrator, when and I'm doing this right now, you've done this as well. When you're dealing with teaching an administrator how to fundamentally understand that product from best practices to usage, you have to give them experience. Well, yeah, absolutely. And so there's there's something here to the the depth of the skill being tested, but I think they're, you know, in a way that's almost an elaboration of the the point we were making earlier about Bloom's taxonomy, right? You brought up Bloom's yeah. an, an administrator working with a product is inherently going to have to do some things that are a little bit deeper with the product than the average end user will. I shouldn't say inherently. There are some pro product uh, products where <laughs> there's very light admin yeah. overhead, but the uh, you know the end user can do things that are that are generative. But anyway, just thinking about like how deeply the person in that role is actually going to have to um, you know interact with the product or what it is that they're going to do with the product is going to inform the depth of the interactivity needed. So I think you're absolutely right. If you look at it through a learner investment frame, um, you really do need to think about when is when is there need a need for that super intensive, um, deeper learning outcome where really taking the time to interact in a realistic environment is going to drive the right level of learning? And I, yeah. yeah, I agree. Like having a certification path, for instance, is a a pretty common one for that. That's a pretty common one. Well, Michelle, I hope this answers your question. I think hey, this is a good one, and and again frames up. The fact that we live in a spectrum, a continuum of, of different kinds of maturity states. So if you're really early on, you might do one thing. If you're later, you might do another one. It's you got to have a lot of tools in your toolkit. Absolutely. All right, Dave, we're well, ready to move on to the next question. Yeah. So the next question, this is going to be from our dear friend, Linda Schreiber-Cohen from Skilljar. Um, so let's play her question. Hi, Adam and Dave. This is Linda Schwaber-Cohen calling in from Seattle, Washington. I work at Skilljar in product marketing and customer education. Um, I've noticed that both of you tend to build training programs that are free for customers, and I was wondering why. Has that been a personal choice, or have you worked with executive leadership to determine your monetization strategy and make that decision? Thanks. Wow. What a good question, Linda. So let's let's think about this, Dave. Here mm -hmm. we're really talking now about the uh, free versus fee program, and it's true what Linda says. In in our past lives, we have typically built programs that have started uh, started off free, and yeah. I think some of that is related to the fact that we've typically been building programs from the ground up, right, Dave? Yeah, and and that's all. Uh, well, typically, yes. Uh, out of 
Out of the last three opportunities or uh, jobs that I've had, two out of three of them, yes, I was doing them absolutely from nothing. Yeah. So when you think about coming in as a new customer education leader and defining a monetization strategy, unless you're already a little bit further down the maturity curve, that's probably not the first thing you're thinking about. So in a way, Dave, we're, <laughs> we're meeting our customers where they, where, sorry, we're meeting our companies, I should say, where, where they are. So yeah. you and I came in, we, we joined these, you know, often venture funded growth stage companies. Uh, what does that company think about at a high level? Well, they're usually driving towards really healthy customer acquisition and, and, ultimately sustainable product adoption, right? Right. They, yeah, I like, I like this because when you're early phase, so let's frame this up in, in context of maybe some of the reports we've seen recently. So let's say you're under 500. Actually, you're probably under 300 or 250 because most of the companies I've joined early phase are, are smaller, right? And they're not quite knowing what they, they know they need education, but they don't know where they're going, but they, yeah. what, what, what they number, care. what number are you using Dave? Is this number of employees? I, I, yeah, I want to say 250, around 250, 300 users max when you're in this bubble of, okay, I just need to get content developed and I need to help educate my customers. I don't know if you'd agree with that, but that's kind of where I feel. Yeah, I just didn't know whether the numbers you were using that were like uh, were number of employees or ARR. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, ARR could be variable still. I mean, you could be a slow ARR company and still need the same thing. Yeah, Um, okay. I'm with you. So, so yeah, that's... uh, it, 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 when we, I come into those environments, I really realize that there's not anything there. So the first thing I have to do is go, okay, let's, let's walk. I'm not going to walk you through this right now. If my methodology is, or it's probably similar to yours, but we've got a lot of work to do just to build the baseline, right? Just to Absolutely. get a program in place. So I'm not thinking about, well, and, and I've had people ask me that question. It's like, what are we going to charge for that? Like, are you, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> we're not we're well we're not really being asked about monetization first and no. foremost because the company itself is not usually ready at that stage to be thinking about separate lines of of services revenue. The company is really thinking about driving license revenue, right? Selling the product itself. It takes a while before you can go beyond that to think about how you're going to have additional revenue streams or additional P&Ls related to things like delivering education programs. Mhm. Yeah, this this is really interesting. I mean, we're we're really saying, okay, onboarding first, support ticket deflection, simple things, and those are a lot of things that our CSMs, our support team members, these folks are doing this already. Like this is a this is a misconception. Um, I love to break in everybody. It's that you might come into an organization. There's nothing, no training or no real education, but it's happening. Mm-hmm. And now you have to kind of bring that out. But that first ask is you don't really want to sit there and, and put like, – like think about it this way. You don't necessarily want to create a paid alternative to the activities that are happening right now. Um, you also want to start with scale. And that means documentation that scales, an academy or university that scales, et cetera. Those are going to serve most of the customers because you – know, think about it. You're a self-serve customer. You want to find value out of a product. You're not going to go and go, oh, well, now there's a paywall. It's kind of like that experience you have going to the New York Times or the LA Times or, or whatever, where you're like, oh, there's an article I want to, oh, there's a paywall. I'm done. I'm out. Right? Yeah. It's I'm going to see I'm gonna see if I can go like open incognito mode and, and get around it. Which, and, and frankly, you know, you might have a friend that has a product or something, but it's really important to start, I think, free. 
and not worry about that monetization revenue initially. Don't even don't even have the conversation. Say, look, that's a year out. That's six months out. Let's let's think about that. What, well, what do you and, think about that? Yeah, I mean, frankly, it's it's not even that people are going to come to us and ask us about the monetization strategy. A lot of the time, like nobody up the chain of the folks who hired you, if you start early enough in a company, will even be thinking about that. Because you're right, Dave, the things that you mentioned earlier, the problems that that company is really thinking about is like, first and foremost, how do we sell more license revenue? How do we get people adopting and sustaining our product itself? We don't want to put any barriers in their way. So you're going to have people doing a bunch of really manual activities to get their customers to do that. Like you mentioned, CSMs are going mm-hmm. to be doing a ton of free training during onboarding. Support agents are going to be spending so much of their time answering oh. the same questions over and over that if you're asking this question when you first get hired as, as customer education person number one or the new customer education leader, ask the folks during that interview. Uh, I was actually having this conversation <laughs> with Linda a little while ago. Like ask, ask them... Um, if I can do one thing well in this role, if you want to see one key result come from my org in the first quarter, first uh, half, first year, what would that be? And unless their answer is specifically, we want to see you drive like a healthy revenue generating uh, training org, which I, I guarantee you most people at a very early phase of company life are not thinking about that. They're thinking about, I would like you to make a dent in the amount of time our support agents are spending answering tickets, or I would like you to make mm-hmm. a dent in uh, the rate at which customers are adopting our product because they're not learning about it correctly. Well, now you have leverage, right? So you do, you're right. You start with scale. You can create scalable documentation. You create an academy um, to start help, help to reduce the pressure on those CSMs and support agents often that will work to really help them focus a little bit more strategically instead of just delivering the same training or answering the same questions over and over. But it's not, yeah, yeah it's not about creating barriers through, through a monetization strategy at that point. Yeah. And that, and that really starts to change. Like one of the, I wanted to go back to a thought I had about this. If you're a customer education professional going to be that first person, or maybe you're coming in later to restart a program, I would ask point blank, where are, how do you think about monetization? I'd also ask that question if you're going to be interviewing other people. Like as a, my organizations have grown, we've added new leadership into the structure. Mm-hmm. And I ask that question in those interviews with those senior directors and VPs and say, well, how do you think about monetization? And for me, it's a red flag if someone can't consciously say, oh, it seems like your company is here at this time and I'm not going to worry about that. Or if they come in saying, no, you need to make this paid and do all these other things, then that's where I start getting, I throw them down a red flag and say, no, this, this is not right. Because it means you don't have the cognizance of the maturity level of your company. It, it really, yeah, it's, it's, is the, is the way that your leaders are thinking about monetization, does that comport with the stage that your, that your company is at, right? Because if you're, you know, kind of immediately pre-IPO, if you're in the late stages of, um, you know, some of those funding rounds, you haven't gone public quite yet, or certainly if you have gone public already and now you're reporting out to the street, of course, these are things you're going to be thinking about more. Of course, you're going to be asked to justify the investments that you're making in things like training, just like you would uh, make investments in marketing. But if you're not far enough down that path yet and you're talking about monetization, uh, it's it's probably a little bit too early for that conversation. Yeah, 
This this is a really good topic, and, and let's talk exceptions too. You know, like and talk growth. So as you're growing, you're going to be adding more headcount, more systems. Then you're going to be talking about okay, how do I pay for this team? Mm-hmm. It does get a little ridiculous at a certain point. Is really unfair. So there are exceptions though. Let's talk about those. One of them that I, I think you've been thinking about is open source. Tell me a little bit about what you're thinking about open source, and then I've got another one. Yeah, I mean, so we're thinking about when when might you actually be talking about monetization early earlier in the journey? I think mm-hmm. open source companies are actually a really interesting exception to the rule because they're not necessarily thinking as much about like the product license. Um, here, a lot of companies who are you know building on top of open source technology are actually thinking about enablement as a really core part of their offering or potentially delivering services on top of that mm-hmm. open source technology. So just because their business models are very different from a, you know, kind of like a platform driven product company in the growth stage where they're really focused on selling licenses, um, a, a company built on open source technology, like a lot of the ones that Bill Kashard will talk about, um, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a lot of the work that he's done at service rocket, learn dot um, on his uh, helping sales podcast, Helping Sales Radio, I should say. That's the name of the podcast. Yeah. Um, he podcast. talks about these companies a lot, right? These are companies building learning businesses much earlier in their life cycle um, because that's part of how they grow their organization. It's part of how they grow their revenue. Yeah, and that's really cool. I mean, naturally, I think about Red Hat. I used to work in a, in a role where I was we – were, we were transferring software that we had on uh, SGI, Silicon Graphics Workstations, to – uh, Linux and I work with Red Hat a lot, um, mm-hmm. and having and knowing that I could call upon someone who's a, a professional, like real support. Because usually in Linux, for example, if you've done anything with Linux or touched Linux, it's like it's a you know what show. <laughs> it, <laughs> it is. It's like oh, I'm going to be digging through all kinds of arcane websites I've never seen before and doing all this stuff and still might screw things up. We needed that for for industry because enterprise um, IT doesn't have time to go looking around the internet for stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, regardless, you're you're probably going to hit a point where your leaders are definitely asking you um, to really consider the you know the monetization aspect of it. Like, you're going to hit that point, especially as you and your team become more expensive because uh-huh. you know, like you mentioned earlier, Dave, you're adding more headcount, you're buying more systems you're at the very least going to um, be targeting cost recovery, like you need to pay for yourself or, or at least be able to show that ROI calculation really clearly. And you want to get ahead of that as a customer education leader. But I think the stage, you know, to, to just come back to Linda's immediate question, we have focused on providing free scalable education first because that builds the strongest platform to build any sort of premium and, and paid offerings down the line yeah. that differentiate from that. Like we're really trying to go with where can we do the most help earliest on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you're putting money in the bank by doing that. There's one other note that I, I had just in, in flight while we're recording this, I'm thinking about, in that it could be strategic for you to think about starting to have some fee-based offerings earlier. And so, so here's an example. Um, in, in one situation I've dealt with, I have a ridiculous amount of live training, virtual or in-person, right? Mm-hmm. Now, of course, for in-person, we had gotten some cost recovery and is, is in, the, in the form of, okay, we're going to bill you for this travel, et cetera. But at the time, we really weren't worried about um, the expense. We wanted to enable a customer, and that was the right decision. 
but that becomes a situation of abuse because if a customer deservedly who want needs and wants education realizes they can get it whenever they want and demand anything, then that sets a horrifying precedent for you. Oh yeah, 100%. Like if you are doing programs that require high manual effort, either because Mm -hmm. you need to customize the content, uh, you know, every time, or because you need to go travel to deliver it or, um, you know, whatever, whatever that might be, there are lots of reasons why people, um, you know, create those more bespoke or more personalized or private offerings. Like there, as long as you do have something where you can point to it and say, well, look, we have a free online academy. It's great. It's at no cost to you whatsoever. It will do a great job helping you, um, you know, helping you get up to speed and onboard. Well, that gives you more leverage in a way to actually then point to your more premium or more bespoke offerings or one that Mm -hmm. uh, have a a more high touch human based approach. If that's something that is helpful to that customer, well, that gives you more leverage than to ask them to pay for it because they can very clearly see the incremental value that you're you're providing by that offering. And I I totally support that. I've done things like that uh, in the past. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point in your maturity continuum. Because at some point, I mean, we offer training, we do training, you know, and you might have learning experience designers or instructional designers do trainings early on just because, but you don't want to keep doing that. And it doesn't scale. But if you're being asked to do training and some and, and you're in a position where you've just done it, and you're not getting comped for it, you should consider that as um, I like I have done this several times where I'm working to pivot in an organization from a bespoke training style. I just I'm asked to do it. I do it. I don't ask questions to a nope. This is the intake. This is how we go about things. And oh, you want a very customized in-app. We're coming to you training. It's going to be expensive. So that inherently starts to pivot people to think more. Oh, well, we'll use university. Great. Absolutely. Um I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. In, in a way, it's it's a consulting conversation, right? Like if you is, can provide different options with different trade-offs, with price points attached, granted, you're not going to get there when you when you first start, typically. And mm-hmm. that's why you and I have, have often chosen to start by building the more scalable free offerings. But, you know, if you are getting those questions from customers who are, you know, saying all training must be live and on site, just because that's what, you know, in our minds, we think training equals... Mm-hmm. Well, by having those different offerings at different price points, we can eventually set ourselves up to have more successful conversations with customers about what's right for them. Absolutely. Well, we beat this one to death, Adam. Shall we continue with the third question in our mailbag? Let us continue to rummage through the mailbag. I, I am absolutely engrossed in the fact that we can make v- videos like sound like mail. <laughs> 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 okay, so... Our third um, questioner of the day is uh, Gordon Mack from Box. So let's play his recording. Hey, Adam and Dave, this is Gordon. I work at Box, the cloud content management company, as the learning technology manager, and I'm based out of the San Francisco Bay Area. I have two questions for the team. My first question is, what is a good approach to getting an existing vendor who provides the platforms which support customer education programs to prioritize product updates? As an example, we use an LMS that supports employees and extended enterprise, but often favors any product feature and optimizations towards employees and not extended enterprise. 
Okay, so there's actually two questions here. Uh, this mm-hmm. is this is a lot to chew on. Let's let's start with question one, Dave. So this this question number one is really about the one finding a good approach to get an existing vendor to prioritize customer education product updates. <laughs> I love this. I love this question. Um, so what what would you what would you say, Adam? First, if if you were having a problem like Gordon or Gordon's friend or whomever. You got a vendor not doing what you want. Uh, find a new vendor. Amen. <laughs> um, I, I only say that because, I mean, wholeheartedly, amen. What did, um, I recall Rob Castaneda uh, of Service Rocket uh, say something like 900 plus different learning management systems are on the market today. I've it seen a few different stats around that. Yeah, I've seen, I think, 700, 800. Um, there, there are a, a lot. lot. There are a lot of LMSs, and those LMSs are not all created equal, both in terms of functionality and in terms of audience, right? There, there are, you know, as many different, there's LMSs for learning businesses, there's LMSs Mm -hmm. for internal HR, there's LMSs for manufacturing, there's LMSs for partners, uh, and then sales enablement, sales enablement. Yeah, that's another great one. And, and so when you actually think about customer education, um, it kind of comes in two flavors. There are, there's the world we used to live in. Uh, where there weren't really any specific customer education LMSs. There were uh, large extended enterprise LMSs, which were primarily designed for, say, internal corporate learning, but then they had some feature functionality that let you extend it to customer-facing functionality as well. Yeah. What, what, give me an example of that, though. Like, be, be concrete. We don't really want to call out negatives or anything, but... What are what are some of the leading extended enterprise LMSs that you have been aware of before, if you know? God, I mean, there's a bunch of them out there. I mean, I think Saba was like this, very, oh, that, very yeah. big name, right? Like, and I, I'm not quite up to speed on on. I think they got acquired recently. Yeah, well, but. let's let's just look it up. We'll, we'll Google that for you. Um, top ten. Um, Oh, no, no, I didn't, this isn't a list. This is a what they are. Oh, yeah, here's one. Um, and I don't know if I des- necessarily agree with these. It's putting Adobe Captivate Prime, Talent LMS. That that may very well be. That's more of like a, a partner. SAP, Litmos. That's um, internal enablement. Uh, but I've seen people use it externally. Okay, so you probably all know better than we do if you've used these before. Uh, what's out there? I was just curious. I didn't mean to put you on the spot, Adam. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not trying to name names because I don't want to make a value judgment um, yeah. about you know just because someone serves both internal and external audiences, it doesn't mean they're a bad LMS necessarily, right? Absolutely like the, not. The point is, nor nor am I trying to say actually that if they're not prioritizing the exact features that you want, that you need to leave them. Because frankly, that's the case with all LMSs. Like there's always <laughs> going to be some aspect of their product roadmap that you're not going to completely agree with. But thematically, what I want to say is that if you have, if you're working with an LMS vendor who claims to be an extended enterprise LMS vendor, and they are primarily architected around the mm-hmm. idea of internal learning, um, but then have kind of a few features here and there, that uh, maybe allow you to extend it to external audiences like customers and partners. Um, if they're not making significant progress on the on the feature functionality that you need to serve the customer education market, then there are many 
purpose-built mm-hmm. LMS products out there now that are actually built for external education. So it really might be time to start evaluating a new LMS. Yeah, I like how you phrase that. And I would say not just external education, it's customer. You're, you're working on your customers first, right? Yeah, and, and, and I know the, the play used to be, right, because this is all pointing towards, uh, let's say, you know, HR was the budget holder here, and they were like, okay, well, you've already got your HR LMS, and, you know, we can extend this functionality to a different audience, and you're going to save budget by doing it. But the question that you have to kind of balance that against is, okay, well, what, like, A, how much uh, administrative overhead am I adding for myself? Because mm-hmm. a lot of the times, um, you know, if it's a legacy system that has a ton of admin overhead, well, that's going to create, uh, it's going to increase the total cost of ownership for you. Oh, goodness, yeah. So sometimes with LMSs like this, the, the issue is going to be that you have an increased total cost of ownership because mm-hmm. of the increased admin overhead, right? Like uh, if you're dealing with a leg- legacy system that has a very complex admin infrastructure, um, it's designed for really large enterprises, that might also mean that you're spending a lot more time and complexity just to administrate it. But the other thing that I would think about is um, what is the user experience like? If you are working with an LMS that's primarily designed around an internal audience, many, not all, but many of those vendors have not really uh, upped their game, so to speak, around providing a really seamless user experience because they're designed around the idea that you, the user, are an internal employee who's in the LMS because they have to be there. Yeah, that's that. That's really a good way to put it. Um, something I'd like to add on to this, though, is let's say you're not using an extended enterprise system. You know, there's only so much you're going to be able to do. We're we're not here to criticize or say anything. There's plenty of really good systems out there, but there's definite unique needs of the market we serve. It's different. Um, if you're not using an extended enterprise system, you have leverage, right? And what that means is. Let's go back to what I said before. We were talking about, is it 700? Is it 900? Who knows how many systems are out there on the market? There's a lot of systems on the market. I would say that 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 contracts quite a bit when we actually think about customer education platforms that uh, immediately said they're they're purpose built, like you said, for our market, for the customer, especially for, I I lean more towards the software, the startup SaaS type environment. so we, we want to look at those. We've used a lot of them. And I, I mean, I want to fall, stop short of recommending something on this this episode. You can ping us separately. But look at the market. Get out there. Do your research. Definitely search. The, the search criteria should have customer education and, you know, exclusive of, of extended enterprise. Um, yeah, there, there are enough vendors out there who have really been built from the ground up with the idea of external, if not customer-specific education. Yeah, they, and then and if I were to go deeper, let's say you're going doing this exercise. Here's what I do: go out, do your research. It's it's going to be pretty quick. Uh, then validate them, challenge their understanding. So if you get in a vendor com, uh, conversation, let's say they they put, and I've seen this, I've I've been here. They say customer education on the main page. They have some blog entries about it. You go there, you talk to them. They don't know what they're talking about. It's rare, but it does happen. Um, and well, a lot of the time it's like it's opportunistic, right? Like you're you're an of LMS course. and you were built for a certain use case and your marketing team has decided that they're going to market you for this additional vertical as well. But they haven't really thought deeply about what that experience is, is actually going to look like. That's absolutely true. It's not it's not purpose built for that. 
Um, yeah. So like when you're when you're thinking about you know if you're going to do like a, an RFP, a request <laughs> mm-hmm. for proposal, like an RFI, mm-hmm. request for information, if you're working down uh, a list of feature requirements and functionality uh, for your LMS, I think you can actually start to use that in a way to both to to look at what's out on the market as well as to cross-check that against the current experience that um, your hybrid extended enterprise system, whatever you're using currently, um, offers. And there are going to be some things that don't necessarily meet the mark uh, quantitatively, like actual features that do or don't exist. So, for example, um, how does your current LMS offer customer-facing learning catalogs? How -hmm. do they offer uh, e-commerce systems? How do they integrate with your other customer-facing systems of record? Like, do they have uh, an integration with whatever uh, CRM that you use? Mm -hmm. Right? There there are pieces like that that are really, like, customer-facing LMSs have to pay a ton more attention to but then yeah. there are qualitative pieces as well, right? So, like, I, I've always been a big proponent of saying, don't just go off of the, you know, the feature requirements. Don't just uh, go off of what boxes they check, but also really think about qualitatively, how well does this vendor know the space? Um, you know, what sort of thought leadership, if any, are they doing in the space of customer education? How are they working with other uh companies similar to yours to solve their customer education problems. And again, qualitatively, what is the user experience like? So, you know, get that demo, ask to see other customer facing implementations of that system. So you can make a decision as well about what that experience would look like for your end users. Yeah, this is all really good stuff. Hey, you, you have a lot of, of, flexibility. And one of the things early on when I just started doing this, I was really kind of scared about, you know, oh, well, this isn't, I don't, what leverage do I have? You have a lot of leverage. And you should also remember that vendors are going to help you. Most vendors, well, they'll be sorry to see you go, but they're not going to block you. Of course, your contract obligation is number one. Um, and other vendors will help you transition off, like with a content strategy. I've seen them say, oh, okay, we'll help you load this into our new system and we'll put hours again. It's not going to be free, of course, but a lot of them will bend over backwards to help you. Um, and I think the last thing I want to tell you, like, so again, we're telling you you have options. We're not telling you to do this. Um, w- at the same time, here's another call out. And if, if, if anybody from you know, LMS vendor, an LMS vendor who in a product team, I'm sorry, I'll say that again. If anybody here is listening from product for one of the LMS companies, your mission is to deeply listen, particularly to the customer education marketplace, because those of you who prioritize fixing stuff and giving us the features that we really need to meet our needs and our customers' needs, those are the ones we're going to be really going and, and working with and allying with first because that's the target market that's where it gets a little harder for somebody who's serving two masters right yeah yeah so I, you know I, we're, we're being a little glib at first right so find find a new lms is certainly uh it's contentious kind of the, it's, the content, <laughs> it's the contentious glib glib answer um and you've come to know really, love from us <laughs> yeah but no i think if we kind of come back to the original question here if you're working with a vendor who doesn't really seem to be prioritizing the customer facing aspects of their platform, I really do think that kind of working through that feature requirements list of what is it that you'd like to see that vendor prioritize 
and or what could you be getting somewhere else in the market, even if you don't end up leaving that vendor, um, because there might be very good reasons, whether it's cost or otherwise, to stick with an extended enterprise vendor that does both. At the very least, you might be able to create um, you know, more, more focus or more urgency for that vendor to fix those things mm-hmm. if you can compare it with other purpose-built tools, kind of best-of-breed customer education LMSs that are also out in the market. Absolutely. This is uh, Capitalism 101. <laughs> <laughs> indeed, indeed. Okay, Dave, so I think we've really covered uh, Gordon's first question pretty well here. What about his second question? Well, you know what? Let's save that for another episode. We'll we'll keep you hanging. A (laughs) two-parter. A two-parter. We've already gone about 45 minutes, so let's break this in two. uh, And we will continue in um, a week, two weeks after this uh, with our second mailbag episode. But now, if you want to learn more, we do have our pet podcast website at uh, customer.education where you can find show notes and other material. And on Twitter, I am at Dave Darrington. I'm at Avermescu, and I'm actually using Twitter more. Special Ooh, thanks yeah. to Alan Coda for our team, uh, theme music. And if this podcast helped you out, you can help us out a lot by subscribing in Apple Podcasts on Overcast, Stitcher, Spotify, you know, all the catchers. Uh, We're out there. And what we'd really love for you to help us out with is to raise awareness of this podcast, make a review. Those of you who've already done that, we have over 20 reviews right now. And we're really thankful for that. There's a lot of great things. Thank you so much. It, it helps us. Give us some feedback. Give us a review. If you've got something critical, let us know an email. Uh, we're here. Those two things really help us out and keep us going. And to our audience, thanks for joining us. Go out, educate, experiment, and find your people. Hey, thanks for listening.